is to give you some practical ways to work with the emotions. Anna talked last night about how to work with thought, that branching, proliferating activity of thought that we know so well with papancha. And what fuels and informs almost all of our thinking, and probably all of the discursive, not very clear thinking that we do, is the emotions. And what I also want to do is to show how your, my, our particular, unique, personal, emotional life can connect us to the vast field of awareness and how through the doorway of the particular or the personal, we can really touch to the universal and that we can do this with the tools that we've been learning of mindfulness and metta. So this way of working with emotions may be familiar to some of you. It's um, expressed with an acronym, RAIN. And as Pascal pointed out, this was the perfect day to talk about RAIN. This was our first RAIN in the month of March. And this acronym stands for the words recognize, allow or accept, investigate or inquire, and then non-identification, not identify with experience. And these four steps are um, they're very specific practices that um, can be an effective way to learn to be present and really okay with strong emotion. And it's really a good tool when we're in the crunch because it's when we're in the crunch of some particularly either painful emotion or just one that triggers us. That's when we tend to revert to some old pattern, some kind of strategy that it probably worked okay in the past, maybe when we were three years old or eight years old, but it's outdated now. And so this is a kind of Dharma update. And these four ways of working with emotion can be used sequentially, um, or they can also begin to be a kind of living spiral of awakening that as we use them, you know, we can cycle from one, two, three, four, and then from step four kind of back to one, only each time around the spiral, yes, we may be meeting some similar um, difficult emotions. I mean, it's the difficult ones we have trouble meeting with mindfulness and metta. We may be meeting the same things, but we're meeting them at a different level with more skill and understanding each time. So this first one, recognizing or recognition, it's very simple. As Anna said this morning, it's simply recognizing what is here, what is present in the heart. And if a specific emotion doesn't, if we can't exactly know what it is, we can certainly know the Vedana, the feeling tone, or the, how can I say it, the feeling tone in which you have been made um, experts by Pascal. So recognizing through mindfulness and seeing, it's the essential first step. It's not enough. I mean, seeing alone doesn't necessarily change anything, but that first step of being able to see what's here, ah, oh, maybe this um, ache in the chest or a tightening, maybe sadness or tears, and then recognizing, oh yes, this is sorrow, this is heartache, this is basic and simple, but it's not really always easy. We educate children to do this. In preschool, they learn, they have these faces, you know, like the smiley face, and then there's the frown face, and then there's a face with 
little tears coming down and the children learn to name each one. This is happiness. This is, what is this? What is she? Oh, she's sad. Um, She's angry. And so they learn how to be aware of what they're feeling, how to be aware of what others are feeling. And my friend um, Susan Kaiser Greenland, who teaches mindfulness to children, has developed this big mind meter where they can actually, um, with a magnet, move a dial and learn to identify where are they on this continuum um, from happiness to sadness and everything in between. Seeing that there is a whole range of possibilities of human emotion that's a source of information for us, of, of intelligence for us, of emotional intelligence, um, is a kind of um, uplifting or ennobling of experiences that can be uh, quite difficult to meet. So that first flash of seeing what's here, that mindfulness flash, um, that deep, direct knowing of the present moment of experience in the seeing, there's only what is seen, that utterly clear gaze, nonverbal, completely intuitive. As John was saying, before thinking, or as my first teacher, Desan Sanim, used to say, be poor thinking in his um, uninhibited pidgin English. Be poor thinking. He would exhort us, find that place, which is be poor thinking. And in this first moment, the truth of what is so is seen. It's known, but then, of course, instantly, the mind jumps in, finds it, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, and then likes it, dislikes it, or is indifferent, constructing endlessly creative, imaginative associations, the papancha, to claim it. And that initial recognition moment is superseded and replaced with uh, a different view, often a distorted view, distorted by emotion, This is a cartoon. Actually, Quilly helped me enlarge it because you do have to see the shape of it. Um, This is a cartoon. It shows um, two snails having a conversation with each other. And one snail is saying to the other, I don't care if it's a tape dispenser. I love her. Can you see? (laughs) I really love this cartoon. For me, it really... It expresses something, maybe about some past relationships. Um, (laughs) You know that determination, we're going to stand by our guy or our gal, or, you know, we don't care if it's a tape dispenser. And... Not too much um, forthcoming, perhaps, from the relationship. Um, We love them. We just love them. So that's recognition. The second one, uh, the second step is acceptance. Accepting so that we can quiet down and calm down and allow that which is already present to be known. As Anna said again this morning, without any effort whatsoever, just allowing simply because it's here. For almost 25 years, I had a calligraphy on the wall of my therapy office with a quote by Nisargadatta, which it's a really beautiful quote on acceptance. By being in alert attention, by observing oneself, and really this goes for the process and work of psychotherapy as well as for 
um, meditation, which is what he was referring to. By being in alert attention, by observing oneself with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, simply because it's there, we allow the deep to come to the surface and enrich our life and consciousness. This is the great work of awareness. So we touch to a feeling, maybe that brokenheartedness, um, maybe we've seen it really is a tape dispenser and our heart is breaking. And in this great um, openness, can we just allow it to be so, to be as it is? Can we accept this sadness um, as it is? How do we learn to do this? We learn acceptance through relationship. There's a wonderful British pediatrician and psychoanalyst named D.W. Winnicott. And he wrote a paper called Being Alone, How to Be Alone. It was called Being Alone in the Presence of Another. And he was describing the way that babies learn to be at ease with themselves through all the storms of baby life, their hunger, their tantrums, their frustration. And uh, he was talking about how simply an accepting parent giving ordinary loving attention when the baby cries, you know, there isn't that blah and dropping it. The parent holds the baby. And just that simple kind of response. Um, the, and and I, think, I think I mentioned in the last talk that this good enough connection, this adequate response of attentive love, um, that research uh, shows that actually... For a baby or um, the parent-baby pair to develop a reasonably steady, consistent sense of healthy connection, Uh, we say attachment, but it has other connotations in this context, Um, a healthy connection, um, that 30% attunement is enough. This is good news for us to be maybe 30% presence, really being present. That would actually be a lot, wouldn't it, if you took the entire day. So without this, it's really hard for babies and children to grow into adults who know how to offer this kind of allowing, accepting attention to themselves or to those they meet. As adults, we have to learn how often to make this kind of friendly and kind relationship to ourselves. And that's part of what we're doing here together. This is a poem called The Lost Son by Theodore Rethke. All the leaves stuck out their tongues. I shook the softening chalk of my bones, saying... Snail, snail, glister me forward, bird, soft sigh me home, worm, be with me. This is my hard time. So he acknowledges, he recognizes and accepts, this is my hard time. In Zen, we say acceptance is the gateless gate. It's a gateless gate. Do you know why? It's a gateless gate because it's actually invisible. You can't see it, but you can feel it as a liminal space. You can feel it as um, a kind of threshold, a gate that we move through, a threshold that we cross. And it's sensed as a shift a subtle shift or change, a movement in the mind-heart. 
And it's subtle, but it's unmistakable. And that subtle shift can really be the difference between heaven and hell, between samsara and nibbana, between a life of fear and disappointment and a freer and more fulfilled life. This gateless gate of acceptance or allowing is the threshold that we really have to cross to live a true life. In full acceptance of whatever may emerge simply because it is there, simply because it's here. We allow ourselves to embrace whatever's arising in each moment. And instead of living in the shadow of the more, better, different moment somehow, the shoulds and shouldn'ts, that sense of this is not the way that it's supposed to be, instead of living in this way that um, actually brings an automatic reaction of, and you can feel it, we're sensitive here, of physical constriction, um, resisting what is always actually causes persistence of that which we're resisting. And the more we resist it, the more power it gains. And the more it starts to control our experience. Denial or indifference is one way of resisting what is. And then acting out of fear or anger, of course, is the more active way of resisting. But arguing with reality, it's depressing. It makes us anxious. We rebel and self-sabotage when we get angry and anxious. And we find ourselves stuck, oddly unable to let go. And I say oddly unable to let go because you would think that the things that we most dislike or have aversion to about ourselves would be the things that would be the easiest things to let go of. It's like children um, growing up and leaving home. You would think that the kids who have a really hard time at home would have an easy time leaving and going off to school. And that the kids who have a really warm and connected and um, happy home life would find it hard to go. But it's the other way around. This is a quote from Achan Amaro. It's hard for us to understand that letting go is not a loss, not a bereavement. Of course, when we lose something that's beautiful and dear to us, there's a shadow that crosses the heart. But we enlighten that shadow with the understanding that the feeling of loss is just the karmic result of assuming that we owned anything in the first place. The renunciate life is based on the realization that we can never really possess anything. I wasn't here Monday night. Um, I was down below giving the talk in the community hall when Eugene talked about paradox. But this is one of those paradoxes that uh, the struggle makes it harder to let go. And that acceptance just allows reality to be as it is. It is that way anyway. And we have to make a relationship with it. We're in some kind of relationship with it. So what kind will it be? Instead of bemoaning that it is this way, paradoxically, acceptance allows change to happen through, this, through positively connoting, giving a positive meaning to that which needs to change, surrounding it with understanding, with compassion. We can stop the war with reality, with what's true, and then we don't fixate it, and somehow it's then free to move and change on its own. 
and we can see this with ourselves, I could see it as a therapist, that when people could understand, when we can understand, that at any given time in our life, um, we're really doing our best, that at any given time in our life, we're behaving with as much awareness and consciousness as we can muster, and that some of the things that are the most constraining for us really were strategies that did work well, that were the best, um, really the best way to be at a different time. So this is not about accepting injustice, but accepting the truth of it in the moment. It may just be a momentary truth of grief or rage, but this is what's here. And the deluded piece of it is thinking that it shouldn't be this way, when this is the way it is. Accepting it isn't moving into indifference or resignation. And this is important, that by working with the emotions, we actually can support and strengthen the clarity of our intentions. Because one of the trickiest things is to be completely honest about our motivations and our intentions. Often, at this point in retreat, insights are coming Ah, these are the conditions that brought about this way of being, this particular kind of suffering. This is the truth of it. Recognizing and accepting allows us to respond from that place of equanimity, that place of uh, of knowing what's true, And even though it may be completely unacceptable, it's true. So we start from the way it is, so that our hearts are quiet and still and not on fire with anger and reactivity. This is from Rilke. I love the dark hours of my being in which my senses drop into the deep, I've found in them, as in old letters, my private life that is already lived through and become wide and powerful now, like legends. Then I know that there's room in me for a second huge and timeless life. And from Zen Master Joshu, the monk asks the Zen Master, why do we stumble on level ground? And the Zen Master answers, it's only because the hearts run wild. So much acceptance and compassion in that answer. Because the ground here is pretty level. I know we have to climb up that big hill from the dining hall, Um, to this hall and to where we live, but it's pretty level ground. Things are being taken care of for us and uh, everything, everything, everything is designed to support what we're doing in this retreat. And still we stumble and still we get our knickers in a twist and still there's confusion and doubt. And it's only because the heart runs wild. So we can actually rest and relax with this. It's a very big, very broad, very inclusive acceptance of the many different kinds of emotions that visit our hearts. And maybe, um, maybe appreciation expresses it more clearly. Appreciation in the sense of seeing and recognizing, of just being with what's being offered in this life. This acceptance or appreciation, it's a path, it's an activity, it's a process. And we find our way to it by opening to what is just being present. So recognition, 
acceptance or allowing, and then investigation or inquiry. This is a cartoon. You don't really have to see this one, but it shows a man in a suit kind of towering over a very pleasant-looking cat looking up at him, and there's a litter box next to them. And the man is saying kind of angrily to the cat, never, ever think outside the box. (laughs) So to investigate, um, we have to investigate our delusions. We have to investigate the various boxes of um, familiarity and assumption about our feelings that we find ourselves in. We have to um, we have to have a kind of passion for this, a passion for being so present, not because we're pushing to make something happen or to end the painful feeling that we might be in, but just a passion for being alive and awake. I remember um, this was actually my first retreat with, it was my first Vipassana retreat. It was taught by Jack and some others, and it was held, this was before Barry, before IMS. It was held in Great Barrington. And I remember it was actually my first interview with Jack. This was in 1975. And I remember um, going in, and I had had some kind of very strange experience. I think I looked at the Coke machine. I was very concentrated in my mind, and I looked at the Coke machine, and a Coke came out. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) it was nighttime. There was nobody around. Nobody saw it but me. But it happened. (laughs) And it completely freaked me out. And this was the extent of my... um, I don't know, mystical powers at that point. Um, (laughs) I remember going into the interview and saying, you know, this is just really weird. I'm in a really weird state of mind and just weird things are happening. And and I remember Jack saying, you know, you're in weird states all the time. We're all in weird states all the time. Think about a moment of being enraged about something. It's a weird state. Think about falling in love with some of the people we have. It's kind of weird that we did. (laughs) Think about it. So, well, don't think about it too much. Um, But So we have to investigate and really get out of the box of what's okay because it's familiar and what's not okay or scary or weird simply because it's unfamiliar to us. So can there be this sort of dynamic living awareness, which I did not have at that time, that can be excited about finding out what some new state is about? What is this? Open to whatever it is, the sadness, the agitation, the weirdness, whatever it is. And with this openness, um, there's a kind of heart motivation and curiosity to find out and to understand the content, to understand. uh, And this is where we as a team are really emphasizing that it's one mind here. It's one heart. And when we open to the practice, open to the emotional life, to the personal, as well as the impersonal um, and that which transcends all emotion, When we open to all of it, the full catastrophe, uh, it really calls forth our whole being. Our whole being, our whole psyche is invited here to reveal itself, to reveal its story so that we can investigate and we can find out how does our personal story connect with the universal or does it absolutely... um, prevent us from seeing that. One yogi from a past retreat was practicing metta for a month, and she discovered that she could actually dissolve her feelings into metta. And she was just overjoyed by this discovery. 
and she imagined that metta would now fill her heart forever and she would never be reactive again. It felt so powerful. It was that real. You know what that feels like. You just can't imagine that you would ever revert to some kind of petty state. So she was sitting in the dining hall filled with metta. And suddenly she saw somebody like just kind of grab and pocket two extra cookies. Just very, you know, kind of surreptitiously. She was sitting there with her heart overflowing and was suddenly flooded with judgment. Just completely, you know, I don't know if she was name-calling in her mind, or, but there was so much judgment of this person. Now, usually we feel that judgmental of something that triggers maybe some um, familiarity in ourselves. You know, maybe she had avoided taking extra cookies. Maybe it said, only take one, you know that sign? Only take one, or <laughs> one at first. Or they have n- nice ways of saying it, but... Um, But to her dismay, she found herself just like that, back in this state of intense aversion, except that she could bring some kindness. One person calls the loving-kindness practice love and kindness practice, which is very apt. So she found that she could actually bring back some of this love and kindness and hold both feelings in her heart. She could see, recognize, allow, uh, accept the judgment, and investigate, understand where it came from, as well as the metta. And this tolerance for seemingly contradictory pieces or feelings, um, this paradox of how can we hold love and hate in the same heart. This is a big question because most of our intimate relationships do involve some of each, or at least maybe hate is too strong. Um, But those we love the most are usually those who trigger the most intense uh, reactions in us, whether it's aversion or aggravation. In the psychoanalytic tradition, This middle way of being able to hold to contradictory, sometimes extremely contradictory emotions in the same heart is called ambivalence. And it doesn't mean the way we usually think of ambivalence, ambivalating, unable to decide about something. It means that being able to hold the two. Um, And I think this is one one thing the Buddha also must have meant by the middle way, that it wasn't just the middle way between extremes of behavior, um, indulging the senses or starving them, but the middle way between extremes of identification, identifying with the love only to be devastated and betrayed when the hate arises, or identifying with, anyway, you understand, these extremes of identification. So how does the unique stream of my personal narrative, of yours, join this wider river of human life? The river of my particular suffering, of your particular suffering, joining that ocean of suffering that the Tibetans talk about. Achan Sumedho says, it's just like this, this feeling of heartache, this feeling of brokenheartedness, the sorrow, whatever it might be, the fear, the terror. This is what it is to be a human being who experiences fear, anxiety, terror. This is what it is to be a human being with a broken heart. It's like this. This is what it's like. So with mindfulness, 
there can be a kind of open reflection on the personal and the universal at the same time. How does life, the Dharma, unfold in you as you, in me as me? How does my heart, your heart, your mind understand? How does your presence and awareness allow you to stay, to stay with experience and see, to use your mind to tune into the body and see how an emotion can be fully felt in bodily sensations? And this is another way to use this third step of inquiry or investigation. To see, let's take anxiety or fear, to allow it to be here and to ask, what am I aware of right now in the body when I have this? I can't exactly conjure it right now, but um, if I imagine, let me imagine that you really don't like this talk and you're really judging it a lot and waiting for it to be over. And I'm like, okay, then I can feel anxious. Here it is. So um, <laughs> that worked. Uh, so we do. We all really give each other, we all say, you know, you don't have to talk that long. That's our veiled way of saying, maybe keep your talk a little shorter tonight. But nobody dares say it right out to each other. So um, feeling that contraction here, feeling the contraction, the the palms start to sweat, Uh, fear, fear, the pit of the stomach, uh, the head begins to maybe ache or vibrate a little bit. Okay, so I'm noticing all of this, I'm noticing all of it, aching, vibrating, but nothing's changing. I'm noticing it, but it's still happening. Uh, Okay, so now maybe some, maybe some frustration arises. So can we stay with that and see, actually, this is a shift. It's a new feeling. Unpleasant, but it's a new feeling. And then doubt. This isn't going to work. Why do this? Resistance. This is really hard. And lo and behold, there is change. This is when um, impermanence is good news. And then maybe there's a sudden surge of sadness. Oh, I remember my friend who, was, who died. And there's a softening into an experience of connection. Understanding that the content of experience, whatever it is, is the content of our awakening. It's the truth. Feeling a feeling emerge and simply being with that with the intention to understand rather than to judge with the intention to care rather than to cure or to fix it when we can feel an intense emotion in the body and keep looking deeply without jumping into analysis Our favorite exercise can be, you know, jumping to conclusions, jumping to interpretations, but without pushing for anything or even intending a result like the end of the feeling. When we can just be with it and embody it fully, become it without getting lost in it. This is profoundly healing. It's called self-regulation or soothing, soothing what Sylvia sometimes calls the startled heart, letting the heart be less defended because it's paradoxically protected by this courage to lean into, to turn toward the strong emotion. It's so counterintuitive. You know, it's like skiing uh, when we first learn to ski, if you have, um, and it, if you haven't, it's, this is how it is. When you first learn, there's just 
uh, an intuitive, you just want to stay near the ground, near the mountain. You don't want to lean out into space. It's scary to lean out into space and look down. So what you do is you just lean toward the mountain and your skis, I guess it's the same with a snowboard, but they just slip out from under you and you fall. It's counterintuitive, but that willingness to lean out into the open space is actually what allows us to stand and be able to move down the mountain. So this courage to turn toward a strong emotion and explore it and find out how it can be a bridge connecting us to this universal life of compassion for just what it is to be a human being. And the fourth step is this step of non-identification, recognizing, accepting, investigating, and non-identifying. Once when I was at a very, um, like in the poem, it was my hard time, a really hard time in my life. It was um, after I had gotten divorced and I was really completely heartbroken. And my first teacher, uh, Desan Sanin, came to visit from Korea. And a few of us got to have lunch with him at a Korean restaurant. And... um, we had, you know, this nice lunch. And then he was sitting quietly. Uh, I guess somebody was off paying the check. And he was just sitting on a bench. And I went over and sat next to him. And I, I mean, he, I had tears in my eyes, but I'm sure he felt my sadness. And he just took my hand. And he held my hand. And it was such a sweet moment of holding hands. And then he murmured something. It was so soft, I could have so easily missed it. But it was the teaching of non-identification. He held my hand and he just said, weather. That one word, W-E-A-T-H-E-R. And I understood, yes, this storm of sorrow and heartache. Uh, It was weather and it would pass. And it just, such a simple way of transmitting this truth. He didn't have to talk to you for 40 minutes. Just one word, weather. just seeing if I could actually stop here. I want to say a little bit more about that. Um, The impersonal processes, it's hard to see them sometimes through the lens of our personal. One more um, personal memory that I'll share with you about this happened when I was um, in labor, and I was very young when I had my daughter, and I really knew nothing about the process of labor and delivery. I had been to a childbirth class where I learned how to do breathing with contractions, but I really knew nothing about the process. And I remember uh, when I had this first strong contraction, it was the talk about weird states, it was the weirdest feeling. You know, you're just there, and we're so used to being in our bodies, and when we move our arm, it moves, and when we move our leg, it moves, and, you know, we swallow, and, right, we think we're pretty much in control of all this. But, you know, it just contracts. It squeezes. It does this. Your uterus squeezes, and you didn't do it. And it's really weird. You're just like, oh, my gosh. And I remember the first, like, really 
strong squeeze. Having this memory, because of the age I was, the most recent experience that I could liken to this was going on a roller coaster. And, you know, when they had a giant roller coaster at, um, anyway, near where we were. And you know that feeling when you're going up the roller coaster and it's going click, click, <laughs> click, click of the gears pulling those cars up that huge, that first huge hill. And it's too late to get off. No matter how much you want to get off, it's too late. You cannot get off or you will die. And it was a similar feeling. It was realizing it's too late to change my mind. This process is only going to have one outcome. I am going to have a baby. And that sense of being caught in an inexorable, impersonal process, completely universal. You know, did everybody get here like this? You can't believe it, but it's happening. It's happening. You really can't believe And the Buddha wanted us to understand about this, about the inexorable, about the irreversibility that our life really is headed in one direction only. I mean, I tell the story sometimes of my granddaughter when her brother was born. She was sort of preternaturally sweet to him, really nice to him. There just didn't seem to be that baby hate that you expect from a sibling for quite some time. And then I remember one day she said to me, you know, and then when I'm a baby again and... I realized she thinks that he's just having a turn and that it's going to be her turn again to nurse and be held and be, you know, be the baby. And I don't remember what I said, but I remember the look she gave me when she said, does that mean I'm never going to be a baby again? It was a moment. The Buddha wanted us to understand about this because it's an important way for us to disidentify with the strong feelings that are happening, to see them as just the activity of the Dharma, this process of life. As John said, to know the feelings as a process, not the I, me, my of things. As Nisargadatta said, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, feeling it fully in the body, stepping aside from all the thoughts and ideas it generates, but looking deeply, staying with this, seeing where it takes you. Doing this, we break the chain of just mindless perceptual processes that we call dependent origination or codependent arising. These processes that, are, that really depend on our automatic identification and reactivity. That's what fuels them. That's what they depend on. When unexamined feelings get into this process, we have the birth of uh, the self, the self that um, gets us into trouble. When we practice RAIN, we break this chain of automatic reactivity of mindless perceptions, and we understand how experience comes to be in us and how the world exists the way it does for us and how it exists for us when we're attentive and how it exists for us when we're indifferent to it. And this is a last quote from Nisargadatta. By shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing that I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the interior witness of the thing. And this capacity to shift the focal point of consciousness I call love.
Rilke promises us that someone who is ready for everything, who doesn't exclude any experience, even the most incomprehensible, will sound the depths of her own being. And anyone who sounds the depths of his own being discovers this process, this unending process of life, something being born, a feeling, a thought a human being, and then giving way to something else. It changes and passes away, and something else is born. And the process is both hugely personal and hugely impersonal. There's just what's true. We don't need to identify with the personal or the emptiness side of things. It's just truth happening in endless dimensions of both personal and universal life. And as I said at the beginning of the retreat, the love of the Dharma has already arisen so deeply in you that it will carry you through all the emotions of your life, no matter what comes to you. You can handle it, whatever it is. And with some mindfulness and metta, you can meet it with dignity and grace. So let's just sit for a minute. attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.